Welcome to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick and this is episode number 54, The Myth of Self-Esteem. Hello lovely people, I am having such an interesting week. I was given the all clear by my doctors on Monday to resume any and all natural athletic activity. I don't know who the hell they thought I was before my heart gave out. But anyway, I've taken up running. I've started the Couch to 5K program. Nine weeks and then I'll be able to run half an hour is the theory. Um, we'll see how that goes. I'm I'm on my second run. I did that this morning. And it is both horrible and simple. Like I get the program. It, it's, it's all right. You know, it, you can do it. So for anyone who wants to join me in a kind of autumnal fitness regime, please feel free. I'm kind of excited about where this might go. I love the feeling of being able to run. I really detest the process of getting to that point. <laughs> it's just just awful. But but I'm all right with it. I'm enjoying getting out, seeing the world at seven o'clock in the morning, doing more than just walking Bodhi. I quite enjoy the the feeling of um I don't know I don't know about you guys, but I always find like athletic tops that have holes where your thumb goes through always feels like you're slightly more fitter than you actually are just wearing the gear so I'm resembling a slightly plump ninja shuffling around the park at seven o'clock in the morning it's it's kind of all right I will let you know how it goes and there is a tentative very tentative link between this event this uh this occurrence in my life and today's episode which is about self-esteem or the myth of self-esteem. So I wanted to talk to you about what I know about self-esteem, which is usually really surprising to people, and um, and to talk about um, where that has kind of left me with this whole learning to run at 46 business. All right, so for most of you probably realise like high self-esteem is something that many of us desire and it seems to be the source of a squillion Pinterest quotes, and we tend to worry if our kids don't have enough of it. It's often touted as the secret to professional and personal achievement, and that's probably why parents and teachers and therapists and coaches bang on endlessly about the many benefits of self-esteem. But does self-esteem actually make us happier and healthier and more successful? Well, I wanted to let you in on a secret. It really doesn't. <laughs> so let me tell you why. So firstly, let's define what high self-esteem actually means so we kind of know what we're playing with. I think most of us would probably describe someone with high self-esteem as a person who makes and believes positive judgments and appraisals of themselves. Right? So they tend to think of themselves with a, a, in a positive light. They tend to bounce back from adversity and they tend to have a kind of get up and go attitude to life. They, they get on with things because they sort of believe in, in their abilities. Now, as aware and reflective creatures, most of us intuitively recognize the importance of self-esteem. And not unsurprisingly, I guess, a great deal of psychological theorizing has focused on 
how we can protect and, if possible, enhance self-esteem, how we can even teach it or learn about it. And over the past few decades, the need for high self-esteem has risen from a from the individual focus to a kind of societal concern. In particular in North America, it's come to embrace the idea that high self-esteem is not only desirable in its own right, but also a sort of central psychological source from which all manner of positive behaviours and outcomes will spring from. And this has also led to the idea that low self-esteem lies at the root of individual and, on a larger scale, societal problems and dysfunctions. Now, this has huge implications for the interventions, public interventions, on individuals and on communities. And the hope that such interventions might work has sustained a really ambitious movement around self-esteem. So taking our definition into account, this idea that people with self-esteem tend to be Uh, tend to make quite positive judgments and believe positive judgments about themselves. They bounce back from adversity and have a bit of get up and go attitude to life. Taking that definition into account, just take this little quiz for me. Would you answer each of these following statements as true or false? Boosting your self-esteem will improve your professional performance. True or false? People with high self-esteem are more likeable, have better relationships, and make a better impression on others. And people with high esteem make better leaders. Now, before I give you the answers, I just want to take you back in time (laughs) to the heady days of the 1970s, to free love and civil rights and the second wave of white feminism. It was the decade of self-realization. And high self-esteem became a huge part of this. The language of self in the 1970s began to infiltrate popular culture, education policy, and management literature. By the 1980s, the California legislature were persuaded that funding a task force to increase the self-esteem of Californians would ultimately produce huge financial returns. The common belief was that virtually every social problem could be traced back to people's lack of self-love. Isn't that amazing? That's where it started, right? That's why we all probably have this quite stereotypical view of Californians. Uh, There's a reason for that. So the governor of California agreed in 1986 to fund a task force on self-esteem and personal and social responsibility, with a relatively sizable budget at the time of a quarter of a million dollars per annum for several years. Now, he argued that raising self-esteem would help solve many of the state's problems, including crime and teen pregnancy, drug abuse, school underachievement, even pollution. And at one point, he expressed the hope that raising self-esteem amongst Californians would help balance the state's budget because people with high self-esteem earn more money than people with low self-esteem and therefore pay more taxes. Now, it's easy to raise an eyebrow at such claims now, especially if you are listening to this in the UK. Self-esteem is not particularly British. 
but the task force got its funding and they created self-esteem committees in many Californian counties. They assembled a whole team of scholars to conduct research and then survey the relevant literature. And in three years, the results were presented back to the legislature. Smelzer, the head researcher, prefaced the report by saying that many, if not most, of the major problems plaguing society have roots in the low self-esteem of many of the people who make up that society. But the findings did not validate these high hopes of the task force. And Smelzer had to acknowledge that one of the disappointing aspects of every chapter in this volume is how low the associations between self-esteem and its presumed consequences are in the research to date. So the whole thing found very little correlation between self-esteem and all of its supposed benefits. But here's where it gets interesting. Instead of examining the merits of more complex models of the self, of looking at the causes of why, um, of even expanding the research study to look at different, different ways of gathering data or different methods to use, They just retained the hypothesis that global self-esteem causes desirable, adaptive, beneficial behaviours. And there's a kind of beauty to this hypothesis. It's simple, it's clear, and it's testable. But how many times do you keep testing something and hope to get a different answer? Well, the self-esteem movement was not deterred by the disappointing findings of the task force. After it was finally disbanded in 1995, so this uh, project had almost 10 years of funding, its mandate was taken on by the National Association for Self-Esteem, or NACE. And on NACE's advisory board were people like Jack Canfield, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, and Tony Robbins, who you may know from Accessing Your Giant Within, and Gloria Steinem. Now, the mission statement of NACE minces no words about the presumed benefits of self-esteem. Its goal is to promote awareness of and provide vision, leadership, and advocacy for improving the human condition through the enhancement of self-esteem. So here we have a huge amount of public funding being poured into a series of groups and projects and research studies that completely ignore their own findings because they're inconvenient. Now, many practitioners, researchers, applied psychologists deal with the problem of making claims prior to relevant research being conducted or finalised. But this dogged quest for enhanced self-esteem, the willful ignoring of research findings, has meant that self-esteem has moved out of the research of clinical practitioners and into that of infomercials and Oprah guests. And this has resulted in any tool in the psychological and pseudo-psychological box being thrown into the fray. It's also meant that funding has been available for subsequent studies. So we now have two more decades following this task force where much more data has been collected and many more research studies have been conducted. 
So surely now we can answer our little quiz. Is it true that boosting your self-esteem will improve your professional performance? People with high self-esteem are more likable, have better relationships and make a better impression on others. People with high self-esteem make better leaders. Are any of these statements true or are they false? Well, in 2003, the American Psychological Association commissioned another self-esteem task force to investigate if these claims were true. They recruited a team of four top psychologists, Roy Baumister, Jennifer Campbell, Joachim Kruger and Kathleen Voss, all very well-established um, kind of Ivy League professor types. Um, and they ploughed through decades of published research on self-esteem. They were looking for trends. They were looking for firm evidence to confirm or refute popular beliefs about self-esteem and the benefits of it. And then they published their study in this influential journal called The Psychological Science in the Public Interest. And they found that all three statements were false. They concluded that high self-esteem correlates with egotism, narcissism and arrogance, with prejudice and discrimination, and with self-deception and defensiveness when faced with honest feedback. So here we have a series of major studies conducted over 50 years assessing the efficacy of self-esteem and finding weak correlations to positive or enhanced life outcomes time and time again. And even though every major research study suggests the pursuit of self-esteem is flawed, it seems that the desire to feel good about ourselves is really, really strong. Now, there is no doubt that concerns about self-esteem are a particular feature of Western individualist culture. So we might conclude that the search for high self-esteem is not a universal human motive, but a cultural one. So what are all these research studies telling us? What are the kind of top lines of these studies that, that we can kind of make our own decisions around whether or not that's useful? Well, I found five consistent key findings around self-esteem. The first is self-esteem is based on what we do, on how we behave. Now, the reason I think this is flawed is because if our worth is based on our performance or behavior, then we're bound to feel poorly about ourselves if our performance or behavior drops. And it does drop, right? It's human nature. But we are so much more than what we do and how we behave. The second key finding, self-esteem is based on how we feel about ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but if I based my self-worth on how I feel on any given day, um, I would be probably just rocking under my desk because emotions are so dynamic. They change like the weather. And to suggest that we should base our worth, our sense of um, ourselves, our own esteem on something that is so changeable and dynamic is kind of putting us, setting ourselves up for failure. It also denies the reality that emotions can be false. They can be a moment in time response to an event that we are misinterpreting. So we are so much more than how we feel about ourselves. The third finding is that self-esteem is based on what we think about ourselves. Now, 
self-evaluation can be a positive tool. But when we base our worth on our thoughts and our evaluations, most of us end up feeling worse. And that's because most of us have flawed thoughts running through our minds all day long. We interpret reality with all kinds of inaccurate and mythical stories about ourselves. The fourth finding is that self-esteem is based on how we're doing compared to others in our peer group. So we don't just evaluate ourselves on how well we're doing, we compare ourselves to others. And no matter how great we are at any given thing, there will always be somebody smarter, faster, braver, more adept, more experienced. We can't control that. We're always going to be ahead and behind some people. And that's when the identity crisis hits, right? I thought I was good at this, but now I'm not so sure. So we can't base our own sense of esteem on what others do or don't do. And the fifth key finding is that self-esteem is based entirely on judgments from ourselves or from others. And this means self-esteem is conditional on other people's approval, on our performance, on our success. And when we start basing our sense of esteem on external dependencies, it's a fast track to feeling anxious, stressed and unhappy because they are things we cannot control. So if the pursuit of self-esteem doesn't result in us feeling good, what do we do instead? Well, I'm going to talk about this in a lot more detail in the next episode, but the key is a concept called unconditional self-acceptance. Now, this means that we fully and unconditionally accept ourselves, regardless of how we behave, of what we think, what we feel, of anything that we, we decide is true about ourselves or what anyone else thinks about ourselves. Now, with low self-esteem, with lots of self-doubt, we often evaluate ourselves negatively. If we do something we decide is bad, we regard ourselves as a bad person. But blaming or praising yourself, your whole self, based on a few instances of your behavior, of the outcomes of that behavior, is like a random overgeneralization. I did this once and so that's who I am. With self-acceptance, with unconditional self-acceptance, we learn that if we mess up, we understand that we've messed up. That's it. <laughs> no judgments, no feeling bad. And over time, no fluctuation in our sense of self-worth. And what tends to happen is you start to experience the world differently. If we don't get what we want, we're still okay. If we fail, we're still loved by our people. With an unconditional self-acceptance, you're interested in learning from specific beliefs and behaviors and outcomes. But your unique you-ness is never up for debate. That is the constant. Unconditional self-acceptance. It's a fascinating concept. There is so much evidence-based research around the benefits of this. And next time I'm going to be talking about how you can begin to cultivate this for yourself. It's a core part of my Compass program is self-acceptance. That's a, that's a key aspect of it. So I'm really excited to dive in on unconditional self-acceptance next time. 
If you're enjoying Courage and Spice and you'd like to help us move up the ranks from number 24 in the self-help charts in Britain, uh, I'd be so grateful. You can head over to iTunes and just give us a nice fat five-star rating and leave any kind words in the review. Thank you so much. I will see you next time.